Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is week number four of the book of James. We're diving into chapter two tonight. I'm so excited that you're with us. If you have any questions tonight while I'm teaching through this, go ahead and put those right into the chat line of uh, the live platform that you're watching on. And at the end, Greg and I are going to talk through some of the questions that you have and try to answer those. And then throughout the week, if I don't get to all of them tonight, uh, we're going to try to get a list of those questions. And I'm going to answer them on Facebook and Instagram and different places throughout the week just to keep you engaged with everything we're learning from the book of James. James shows us throughout the book what we want to be. In chapter 2 that we're diving into, he shows us that as followers of Christ, we want to be people of justice and mercy. But then the big thing he does is he shows us the why behind it and the how to become it. In fact, if you were with us last week, at the end of chapter 1, what James does at the end of chapter 1 is he gives us a table of contents for the rest of the book. He talks about our tongue at the very end. He talks about the poor, widows and orphans. He talks about keeping yourself, uh, not being polluted by the world. And if you follow the rest of the book of James, he then takes those subjects and breaks it down. So tonight we're going to look at a gospel view of people as we dive into chapter 2. If you are following in one of our small groups, and you've got your small group guide with you, go ahead and take notes right on there tonight. I'm going to give you all the fill in the blanks. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says this, my brothers and sisters, believers, believers in our glorious. Now, remember that word. We're going to come back later and really look at what that word means. Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. So he's saying believers must not show favoritism. Now, in your small group guide, in your notes there, the first first point that I want to make is James always shows us who we are first, then how we live. Always. All throughout the book of James, he starts by showing you a picture of who you are. This is who you are in Christ. Now, here's how we live our lives. Life. He says, first, you are a believer, not just in anybody, but you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who you are. Then, how do we live? We live as people who do not show favoritism. Remember at the end of last week when we looked at chapter 1 and James talks about the mirror. The mirror is the power. It's the source for how to do everything in the book of James. He says, you look at the mirror, which is God's word, the truth about who you are. And if you, if you look into the mirror and you remember who you are, then you are empowered to live it out. But if you forget what you see in the mirror, then you don't have the ability to do any of it. And again, the mirror, what does the mirror say? See, I grew up in a church that said the mirror shows you all of your flaws, all of your failures, everything you're not doing right, the sin in your life, the mistakes that you're making, but there's nothing further from the truth. When you look into the mirror, God's truth, what God's truth says about you is you are forgiven. You are loved. You are accepted. You are worthy. You are a son or daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And when you know who you are, then you're empowered to live the life. This is the exact opposite, by the way, of religion. You see, if you look at the Bible through a religious filter, if you look at Christianity through a religious filter, then, then, then here's kind of what it looks like. The Bible says that I've got to forgive. 
You know, somebody made me mad, and the Bible says that I've got to forgive them. Well, I just, I can't forgive them because I'm too angry, I'm too mad, I just can't do it. So what do I do? What do I do? Well, I've got to try harder to forgive. Wrong. You see, that's the religious approach to Christianity. We try harder to obey. We try harder to forgive. We try harder to do what we have to do to follow the rules, to obey the commands, to be a very, very good Christian. But real Christianity, what you see in the book of James, is it's all about being, then doing. When you understand who you are, then you have the power to do it. In other words, what you believe determines what you do. Belief impacts behavior. So let me say it like this. Doing Christian stuff, doing Christian activities does not make you a Christian. And James says this over and over and over and over. And if you can't do what James is talking about, the reason why is not that you're not trying hard enough. It's because you have forgotten who you are. You have forgotten what you look like in the mirror. So he says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. So if you're struggling with showing favoritism, what, what, what's going on is you don't need to try harder. You need to remember who you are. James, yes, tells you what to do. He says, don't, don't show favoritism, but he only tells you what to do because he first shows you who you are, which is actually the power to do it. It's the reason for doing it. It's the basis of doing it. So why do we, as followers of Jesus Christ, why do we not show favoritism? Because we're people of the gospel, plain and simple. You see, here's the gospel. The gospel, if you really want to know what the gospel is in your life, and, and if you allow these two thoughts of the gospel to land in your heart, it, it creates this spiritual energy inside of you to live out Christianity. And the gospel is simply this. You are far more wicked and evil than you ever possibly imagine. And I know that's hard for some of you because a lot of people really don't feel like they're that bad of a person. You know, we talked about this last week. 90% of Americans think they live the type of life, the type of goodness, the type of love that would make the world a better place. Well, if that was true, America would look very different than it looks right now. You're far more wicked and evil than you ever possibly imagined. But at the very same time, you are far more loved and far more accepted than you ever dreamed of or hoped for. And when you allow those two thoughts to fall in your heart, that is the gospel. What it produces is somebody that is incredibly bold and incredibly humble. So you don't look down on anybody as being inferior to you because you know that you're a sinner in need of grace. But you also, at the very same time, don't look down on yourself in comparison to another. You don't have an inferiority complex because you know how loved and accepted you are. It's a gospel self-esteem. And so we don't show favoritism in life because we're believers, because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 2, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring. Now, if you study this word in the Greek language, it literally translates gold finger, not the James Bond movie gold finger, but, but gold finger. In other words, it's somebody who shows his importance by what he wears. So, he, so he's putting gold on his fingers to make sure everyone around him understands how important he is. It's 
very similar to brands and designer labels today. Like, I've got to have that Gucci bag or that Louis Vuitton or, or the Balenci or whatever it is. I mean, it's kind of sad that I even know these brands, but that's what I'm talking about. It's like, I, I've, got to, I've got to have a certain brand on, and it's got to be seen. It's got to be obvious. Everyone's got to know, because they've got to know how important I am. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And then at the very same time, a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I mean, no, discrimination is a huge issue that we're dealing with in America right now. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen, I love that word, chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. Now, I'm going to give you a very hard reality for North County. This, this is a hard truth to swallow for just a moment because here in North County, we are incredibly blessed incredibly blessed. And even if you think you're poor in North County, the reality is your life is far better than the majority of people living in the world today. Here's the hard truth of what James is getting at. In your notes, the poor generally understand Christianity better than the rich. For whatever reason, the poor typically have a better grasp on Christian faith than rich people. And this is what it means. And when it says, has not God chosen those who are poor to be rich in faith? For whatever reason, the poor tend to be richer in faith than the material rich. Now, why is this true? Well, the big reason is the poor know the truth. The poor typically know the truth. The rich by and large, live with, 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 a, with, a, with a sense of self-denial or, or delusion. Many rich people, they honestly want to believe that they are where they're at in life because of themselves. Because they worked hard in school, or they worked hard in their career, or they studied hard, or, or they did everything they were supposed to do. But the truth is, let me ask you a, a, a question, and just be very honest with yourself. If you were born as an orphan, in, a, in Cambodia, in some remote village, where you, would you really be where you're at today because of your hard work? Here's the truth. I know poor people all, the, all over the world who work just as hard as the rich, and they're just as smart as the rich. They're, they're incredibly brilliant people, but because of different circumstances they were dealt in life, they're not living under the same circumstances as the rich. You see, most and, and this is really the reason why most rich people genuinely don't truly give their heart and life to Jesus Christ until they go through a tragedy, until they go through a circumstance that they can't control with their own ability, that they can't manipulate the results of, typically don't give their heart fully over to Christ. You know, America is a rich nation, and one of the things that we've seen COVID expose in America is that Christianity, for many people in America, is an illusion. Like, like we, we, we call ourselves Christian. We go to church, 
But as soon as COVID hits, what COVID did is it didn't destroy anyone's faith. It just exposed where many people's faith was at in our nation. And what a lot of people realized about their faith is it just wasn't there. And we're seeing the fruit of that right now because we had this illusion of a Christian nation, but we weren't rooted in faith. And part of the reason is when you're rich, you really don't need God. And for many of us, we've never been in a spot where we've desperately needed God. And that's all that James is getting at, is that the poor people who are in tough circumstances generally understand it better than the rich. And God has chosen them to be rich in faith. Doesn't mean rich people can't be rich in faith. It just means typically it's easier for the poor. Verse 6, he says, you have dishonored the poor. You've dishonored the poor. Is not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? What James is doing is he's exposing a selfish streak in us. And we all do this. I mean, typically, anytime we go to any type of an event, party, activity at work, we usually favor the rich. And it's not just the material rich, it could simply be the connected. It could be the influential, it could be the important people in the room over the people that aren't connected, over the people that aren't important. We believe for whatever reason we can get more out of them, and so we typically neglect people that we don't view as having anything to offer us for people that we think we can get favors from in the future. And that's just part of human nature. We all do it. I found myself doing it from time to time, scanning a room and trying to figure out who are the important people that I need to connect with and and really not giving the time of day to other people. I'm guilty of that. But God's heart all throughout the Bible, when you read and study the Bible, God's heart is always for the poor, the disenfranchised, the discriminated against, the people that no one else uh, uh, looks at or, or gives any credit to. God is always going after the ones that are overlooked, the neglected. Think about King David. I mean, the prophet goes to David's father and says, bring in all your sons, and his dad brings all of his sons in. But David, imagine how overlooked you must feel to be to be totally forgotten by your own father. And yet God saw that young man out by himself, overlooked by everyone else. God always sees the overlooked. God's heart is for the poor. You know, the irony of this message is we live in California. That's where we're at right now if you're watching this from somewhere else. And in California, as a state, we have worked incredibly hard legislation to try to wipe out favoritism and discrimination more than any other state in our country. Like we, we have tried to be the model in America for racial equality and anti-discrimination and, and, and anti-favoritism in every way, and yet we can't get rid of it. Why? Because we're focused on the doing and not the heart or the root of the issue. You see, what I love about James is he doesn't doesn't say you need to stop discriminating. You need to stop playing favorites. No, he tells us why and he tells us how. The why. Let's go back to verse 1 for a moment. Let me show you the why. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers, look at this, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. 
Here's the why. Under the gospel, if you're taking notes, the only favorite, the only favorite is Jesus, the glory. The glory. And I'm saying it like that for a reason. It's like they used to call Muhammad Ali the champ. They called Elvis the king. If you want to know who Jesus is, he is the glory. In fact, the translation here, glorious Lord Jesus Christ, really isn't the best translation because it really says Jesus the glory in the actual language. So what is James trying to get at here? He's saying don't be partial to people. Don't play favorites because the real glory in every room that you will ever be in is Jesus himself. Think about it. James could have said Jesus the honorable. He could have said Jesus the lovely, Jesus the mighty, but he chose this word glory. Not just glorious, the glory. Literally, we do not have favoritism in the faith because Jesus, who is the glory. So what does that mean? How does that apply? What what, what is the glory? How does that practically apply to us today? Well, one of the things I want you to understand about James is he doesn't use this word lightly. James was an extremely devout Jew. Uh, James's father, we talked about week one, Joseph, Jesus's father, and James's father was a very religious Jew. James himself was an extremely devout Jew. He was very respected amongst the Jewish community in Jerusalem, so much so that Josephus, years later, would write about his life that Jerusalem may have been sacked. Many of the Jewish leaders believe that Jerusalem was sacked by the Roman Empire because of the martyrdom of James in A.D. 62, because he was such a respected person that his death brought such a curse upon Jerusalem. So, so where does this word glory come from? Well, it's the Hebrew word kabod. That's where it comes from. And the word kabod, the, the glory of the Old Testament, it means heaviness or weight. That's what glory literally means is, is weight. There's a weight. Jesus has a weight to him. So let me give you the practical application. A rich man walks into the room and he shows his glory or his weight by his wealth or by his gold. The gold would would weigh something and and, and the more weight you had in gold, the more it was wealthy, the more it was valuable, the more influential you must have been. And so there was a weight to the gold. A poor man shows up into the very same room and he shows the lack of of glory or the lack of weight. So here's the application. If the real glory is Jesus, because the glory is Jesus, then he is far more important than anybody else in the room. And that's why we never show favoritism or discriminate because God's weight is greater than the wealthiest person on planet Earth's weight is today. Do you really believe the wealthiest person on planet Earth today could even compare to the weight of God? I mean, God is so wealthy in heaven. They have have so much surplus of gold, they're using it to pave streets. That's how wealthy they are in heaven. Like, God is not struggling. There is a weight to God that far surpasses the weight of any human being on Earth. And so James is saying the reason we don't show favoritism is because God's weight supersedes anyone else's weight, and he's always the most important person in the room. And if God, 
the weightiest person out there esteems and values the poor. If God has a heart for the poor and puts value on their life, then who are we to show favoritism to the rich because of their wealth? And again, it's not just financial rich and financial poor. This could be a racial thing. This could be a gender thing. This could be a lot of different ways to discriminate and show favoritism, but it's all about weight. Now, now again, let, let me give you one more illustration to really help you understand glory. Glory meaning weight. Uh, when my son Asher, is now 12, when he was three years old, he had a bunk bed at home. And one night, my wife and I were trying to get him asleep. He was wound up and wild. And we are trying to calm him down. And so we both uh, got into his bed with him. What we didn't realize at the time was that my wife and I's glory was greater than the glory of his bed. And his bed collapsed under our glory. Thank God we have an incredible man in our church, one of our leaders, John Hovis, who came over to our house and he helped make our son's bed more glorious than us. And now it can hold our weight. But that's an example. The Old Testament temple, they dedicated Solomon's temple. It says the glory of God fell into the temple and it was so heavy in the room that nobody could stand, that all of the priests and ministers fell prostrate on their face. So the why is the word glory. The how is the word believer. How do we do it? We're believers. We're believers. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul puts it like this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he had incredible glory. Yet for your sake, he became poor. He gave up all of his glory. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus gave up his glory. And he gave it to us so that we could be transformed from the inside out. That's what it means to be rich in faith. When you're rich in faith, it's the new covenant where God takes it and he writes it on your heart. It transforms you where it becomes your natural desire in life. Verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as law breakers. Forever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a lawbreaker. James is driving home how futile it is for us to try to follow God's law through willpower or religion if we're not connected to the source of grace. Who we are, then how to live. That's the pattern here. If you get it out of order, you have no power. So look at verse 12. Here's the who you are. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. What is the law that gives freedom? It's the law of truth. Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In John chapter 1, he describes the truth as the truth of grace. It's the truth of grace. Paul puts it like this in Romans 6. You're no longer under sin because you're not under the law, you're under Grace, it's grace that is the truth that gives you freedom. So that's who you are. You are somebody who is under the law of freedom, the truth of grace. Here's the how. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So because of who you are in Christ, the hows were people of mercy, were people of justice. And what James is doing is he's referencing the sheep and the goats here. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives us a frightening parable. And it's not a parable between 
Christians and non-Christians, it's a parable between true Christians and false Christians. It's, it's a parable between people with living faith and dead faith. And again, this is the point here. James is not saying our works make us a Christian, but a Christian will have works. There's a big difference there. Your works don't make you a Christian, but a Christian has works. Jesus in Matthew 7 it says, therefore, by their fruit, you will know them. How many of you know an apple tree, the, the, the apples in an apple tree doesn't make the tree an apple tree. The, apple tree. the apples simply reveal that it is an apple tree. When you see the apple, all you know is the tree has life. All you know is that it's an apple tree, but it was an apple tree before you see the apple. The apple just shows what it really is. That's what James is getting at. Works don't make you a Christian. They just reveal that you are a Christian. So here's my warning. We don't read something like this and then get scared because of this message, and then we go out and we do a bunch of good things to prove we are a Christian. No, no, no. You've missed the point. He goes on to say in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but it does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. James is saying Christians are people who actively meet the needs of the poor. And you meet the needs of the poor the way you would meet your own needs. If, if you found yourself in a situation without food, all of a sudden you would get very creative, you would get very passionate, you would get very energetic to find a way to eat. James is saying, do you have the same level of passion and energy for the poor as you would for yourself? You see, if you respond to, to poor and hurting people with scorn or indifference, what James is saying is that just reveals you don't have a living faith because faith without a care for the poor is dead. Remember verse 8 to 11, James uses the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself. You need to care for them the way you would care for yourself if you were in the same situation they're in. And then he says something shocking. He goes on to say, so he's, so he's talking about love your neighbor as yourself, and then he correlates neglecting the poor being no different than committing adultery. Wow. Think about that. If you neglect the poor, if you're indifferent to the poor, James is saying that's, that, that, that's equal to committing adultery. Now, how many of you would say ignoring how many of you wives would say that your husband ignoring the poor would be the same thing as him committing adultery? But that's what James is getting at. He's saying it, 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 it's all connected to the heart of someone who's been changed by the gospel. Verse 18, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. Verse 24, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, 
and not by faith alone. Now, I want to read, I want to read that verse to you in the actual uh, Greek. The, the New American Standard Bible is a literal word-for-word translation from the Greek. Here's what it says. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. What James is doing, we talked about this week one, is he's being mischievous because we know that Paul says we're saved by grace and not we're justified by faith and not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then James says a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Let me explain this. There's two ways to use the word justify. Paul uses it, we're justified by faith, meaning by faith we become justified. But you can also use the word justified, where it is if I say something that's true, I give you a true statement, you can say justify that statement. Now, what that means is I've got to explain to you that the statement is true. Now, my explanation doesn't make it true. My explanation shows that it's true. That's the way James is using the word. He's not saying that works make us saved. He's saying works show that we're saved. Verse 25, in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, your body without a spirit would be dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Here's the final point. James is not showing us how to become saved, but how we know that we're saved. He's not saying you have to do these deeds to become a Christian. No, that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying a Christian will do these deeds. This is what the difference between a dead faith and a living faith is all about. So again, don't run out all nervous that you may or may not be a Christian and think you've got to do a bunch of things to to prove that you're a Christian. No, no, no. It's a heart thing. When grace and the gospel take hold of your heart, it produces deeds. Living faith produces deeds is all that James is saying. Just like a living tree would produce apples or oranges or whatever type of tree it would be. If the tree was alive and healthy, it would produce fruit. If the tree was dead, it would not produce fruit. That's all James is getting at here. He's not telling you, you have to do this. He's simply saying, people who have living faith This is what it looks like. Father, we thank you for this incredible book. God, this challenges us. It it helps us take an assessment of our life. None of us are going to be perfect, God. And and, and this is not saying that we're going to live perfect in every single situation that we encounter and that we face. But our heart, God, we're going to feel a change in our heart through your grace that when we come into different situations... Even when we don't respond, our heart, God, is going to be pricked to do something about it. And Lord, our heart is that we yield to that heart of grace that you've placed inside of us more and more on a daily basis. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's dive into some questions. Come on. All right. Uh Uh-oh, you okay? All right. (laughs) All right, and so we have a uh, some a few questions here. Um, first of all, uh, just really, really powerful stuff. I love I love uh, how in each and every one of these we we do some culture defying. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a big deal. And so let's let's start there, right? Um, when you were talking about the hard truth, right? That for, that's hard for North County. 
uh, one of the things that you said was the poor generally understand faith better than the rich. And it sounds like the reason why is because, you know, the rich is self-reliance versus, you know, the poor's reliance on, on the Lord. And what that, what that brings up is this question about really the pursuit of happiness, yeah. right? And how we in America, but especially in Southern California, right, are always out pursuing happiness, working for happiness. Uh, it, so can you explain how, really how, how that's flawed, how that's not flawed? Can you explain how what you're talking about now plays yeah. into that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like the, the hard part, you know, I, I've seen for the rich to really understand faith is it's hard to be found until you know you're lost. You know, one of, one of the things you, you learn as a, as, a, as a Christian, when you're trying to bring somebody to Christ, you have to help them get lost before they can be found. Mm -hmm. Because if they don't know they need Jesus, they're not going to respond to him. You know, and God doesn't sell fire insurance. Uh, you know, it's got to be more than that. One of the examples James gives in here in verse 19 that describes dead faith, and this is a, a lot of what we see uh, in America today, because again, until we really get to the place where we're, we have spiritual poverty, you know, that we know that there's nothing I have to offer God to save myself, that, that, that without Jesus, I'm doomed. Mm -hmm. Without Jesus, there's not, it's, it's not Jesus plus, you know, some of my good things that get me into heaven. It's Jesus plus nothing. You know, one of the things he says is even the, he goes, you believe that there's one God. Good. That, that's a good thing. But even the demons believe that and shudder. So what James does is he shows us two things that are kind of frightening about dead faith. He, he says, first off, you can have these two things. And both of these two things are really, really good things. Like, like genuine Christians have these two things. They're good things to have. But he's saying you can have these two good things and still be a demon. One of the good things is sound doctrine. Like you can have sound doctrine. You can be incredibly knowledgeable about Christianity. I mean, look at the devils, you know, the demons. They went to the greatest seminary in the universe, the heaven of heavens. Every demon knows more about the Bible and God than the greatest saint or pastor to ever live in the history of mankind. What am I saying? There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being knowledgeable about God. There's nothing wrong with being knowledgeable about the Bible and having great doctrine, but that doesn't mean you're any different than a demon. You know, your Bible trivia doesn't make you anything, else, anything more than a demon. And then the other thing is demons respect the power and the greatness of God. It says they shudder, meaning they act based on what they know God can do. And there are a lot of believers today that, you know, they... they, they, they they believe the truth of the Bible in the sense of they know the Bible is true, they know God is true, they know God is great, and they shudder. They're afraid of his punishment. So in turn, they become a very moral and religious person. They, they follow all the rules, and, and, and they're a very religious Christian, but that doesn't make them anything more than a demon, which is frightening. So I can be very moral and very religious, I, I can shudder at God because I know his power and I know how great he is and I can know the truth of heaven and hell, but even the demons know. That doesn't mean I have a living faith mm -hmm. is what he's getting at. And so what does it mean to have a living faith? That, that, that's the heart of this chapter. And to have a living faith, we have to become spiritually poor. 
We've we've got to get to the place where we realize I've got nothing to offer God. I've got to come to God in absolute poverty spiritually so that I can be saved because it's not something I can pay for. Huge, right? Huge. And like you said, that is, that's an eye opener. It can get pretty scary, (laughs) right? Um, And so there's a question to to go along with that, Mm -hmm. that if I'm wealthy and God has blessed me, does that mean I should give it all away and then become poor and rich in faith? Absolutely not. No, I mean, absolutely not. Unless God has, your job, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, is to obey. Plain and simple, you are to be a steward. If you are rich in material possessions, your job is to recognize that none of it's yours, it's all God, and you are there to manage it for him. So if God supernaturally tells you to give away every penny to the poor, then you obey. If God has not told you that, your job is to manage God's estate on his behalf. And the good news is the better manager you become of God's estate, the more you enjoy it and the more the estate grows. But, but you're not supposed to become rich material or, or poor in your materialism so that you can find faith. You're supposed to become poor spiritually so you can find faith. The key to a rich person coming to God is to understand their spiritual poverty. And again, that's why I said many rich people don't actually genuinely give their life to Christ until they go through a tragedy because a tragedy makes you realize how spiritually poor you are because you have no control over that situation anymore. Your money can't buy you out of that sickness. Your money can't restore that relationship. Your money can't fix that issue only God can. That's what it means to become spiritually poor. And hopefully you don't have to go through a tragedy to become spiritually poor. But oftentimes we do see many people realize how spiritually poor they are through tragedy. Hmm. Okay. And so just, just again, like just keeping along this vein of, you know, being spiritually poor and our hearts, yeah. so to speak. Right. Uh, another question is that's here is in in line with our heart and our heart for the poor, or the discriminated. When we see someone that's homeless, every time we see someone that's homeless or holding a street sign, does that mean that we should feel like we should give them money, or we should not necessarily feel like it, we should give them money, just give them money? Is, is giving money to a homeless person the best way to help them? That would be the question. Mm. Is that the best way to care for them and help them? Is that the best way to follow uh, what James is talking about, about caring for those in need? I lived in Los Angeles for years and worked at the Dream Center, and and we dealt with homeless people every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was out on Skid Row on a weekly basis working with homeless people, loving homeless people. And to be very honest, giving them money can almost be one of the worst things you can do for them. Just because someone thinks this is what they need doesn't mean that's what they actually need. How many times do we go to God in prayer and say, God, this is what I need you to do, and God looks at us like, that's not what you need. (laughs) If I answer that prayer, that'll be the worst thing I could ever do for you. And he gives us what we really need as opposed to what we think we need. So the real question is, how do we help somebody in need? Mm Mm-hmm. And that's why we have the Holy Spirit. It's different for every person. Sometimes it's an encouraging word. Sometimes it's a prayer. 
Sometimes it's buying them a meal. Sometimes it's buying them some clothes. Uh, rarely is it just giving somebody money. You know, Jesus never told anybody, you just need more money. You know, that, that was never the answer to anyone's issue uh, in the gospel. It was always faith. It was always healing. It was always, it was always some physical need, but it wasn't money. Mm-hmm. Okay. Does that help? No, this help, helps. Yeah, right. I know, right? So we'll see. I'm having a really good time. Now, there are times where the Holy Spirit can prick your heart and say, go give that person money. Uh, he's done that to my heart plenty of times where, where I've been very sensitive and felt like, you know, like my, my son and I, we were in Colombia uh, a year ago and there was a Venezuela refugee. You know, re- what's happening in Venezuela is horrible what the government's doing to the people. They're starving. This guy was skin and bones. He was a pastor. had church of 600 people and the government shut his church down and forced him to flee the city and he wound up in Colombia homeless, lost everything, mm-hmm. his business, his church, his family. And he was living on the streets, homeless. And, you know, my son, he, he ties to the church first. The first 10% always goes to God's house. But then he ties a second 10% to what we call the poor. And whenever we travel, he takes that money with him. And that's, that's the money I, I, I have him use to teach him how to hear God's voice. You know, one of the easiest ways to learn how to hear God's voice is in offerings. Just ask God what he wants you to give. He'll always tell you. I mean, if you ever want to hear God's voice, ask him about giving away money and he'll speak to you pretty quickly. <laughs> and, you know, we travel and, and, and the Holy Spirit told my son, give him, you know, he had $20 at the time, give him the $20. You know, $20 for my son doesn't mean a whole lot. But for this guy, that was, that was, that was six weeks of food, mm-hmm. you know, for this guy living on the streets. And, and this, this was a guy that he came to an event we were doing. So it wasn't just like a homeless, homeless guy. We knew he was a pastor. We knew he was working hard to try to, you know, figure out his situation. And he just bawled and began to weep. And, and it was just a moment where my son listened to God and made a difference in his life. And, and it, it was a beautiful thing to see happen. So every situation is different. And again, that's why we have the Holy Spirit. And that's, it's just so, it's so powerful, right? And it just has God written all over it because sometimes the, when you see somebody on the street and you just give them a dollar, that's almost like you're making yourself feel better, so to speak. I, yeah. yeah, right? Well, at times you're doing it for you, you're not doing it them. for you, not for them. Yeah. And so with, with that said, right, um, you, you touched on something that was really powerful in that it's not just the poor as in the people that don't have any money. It's also the discriminated against. It's also yeah. the marginalized. It's also the oppressed. A lot of us have different areas that we're, that we're drawn to. You spoke about this last week. Mm-hmm. But can you explain how the process of sanctification, because you've been really clear about the fact that you can't just go out if you can't just go out and say, you know what, I'm going to help fight against oppression, oppression today because that's what the Lord wants me to do and I'm going to do it uh, type of thing based on willpower. It has to be your heart. And so can you, can you talk about the process of sanctification for the people that are like, you know what, I want to care about the marginalized, I want to care about the oppressed, I want to care about the poor, and I believe in the Lord, but I just don't right now. Yeah, it's, it's all going to the cross. It's all, it's, it's all a revelation that, that Jesus, can you imagine how wealthy and how luxurious and how incredible his life must have been in heaven? Think about what he had to give up to come and live on earth. I don't think we can comprehend how good he had it living in heaven and what he had to sacrifice. 
what he had to give up to come and live on this dirt ball we call earth <laughs> with us. You know, and after living with us for 33 years, he still found enough love in his heart to go to a cross. That's how much he cared for each and every one of us. When I realized what he did for me, you know, the, the reason why it's, it's easy for me to not be racist, it's easy for me to not discriminate against the poor, it's easy for me to be moved when I see somebody in need to, to do something about it, is I honestly, I've, I've never gotten over the gospel. You know, this, this may sound cliche, but I've genuinely never gotten over being saved. Hmm. I've never gotten over the fact that I was lost in going to hell. And there was nothing I could do about it. That there was absolutely nothing I could do to save myself. And Jesus, he came, and with love in his heart, he, he, he was tortured and beaten for things that I did. And he went to a cross so that I could be forgiven. I've never gotten over that. And I'm telling you, when that is in your heart motivating you, how can I look down on anybody? Because they're poor, because they're black, because they're brown, because whatever. How can I look down on them when I know what Jesus has done for me? It all goes back to the gospel. Every, the answer to every social issue in America today is the gospel. It's the gospel. It's just the gospel. And that's why James, over and over and over, he keeps bringing you back. Here's who you are. You're a believer in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And because you're a believer, don't show favoritism. Mm -hmm. Because of who you are. Like, you believe in Jesus. Look at what he gave up for you. How could you look down on anyone else? It's the gospel. That is pure fire. Because that means it doesn't have to be a process, so to speak. It just needs to be making sure that the gospel takes hold. Making sure that you are going to Jesus yeah. and remembering, knowing, understanding in a way that only the Holy Spirit can lead us to do, yeah. right, what, what the Lord has actually done for us in yeah. that instant change. Yeah. In the name of Jesus. <laughs> All right. Um, we actually have more questions here, and so I didn't... Uh, we only have you for an hour, and we want to be respectful of everybody's time. And so, as you've been seeing, Pastor's been great about making sure that additional questions have been answered. He's been going over this stuff again on the Sunday services. And so, we'll do the best that we can to get the rest of these uh, questions answered. But we definitely thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, Pastor, if... I'm going to have him email me the questions that did not get asked tonight. And if you follow my Instagram or my Facebook, it's just at Aaron Jane. Uh, I'll be answering those over the next couple days. I'll do little videos and just take the questions one at a time. There you have it. Now we know how it's going to happen. Everybody, we will be back here again next Wednesday at 730. If you want to join us here in person, uh, Coastline family, are we having a good time tonight? Yeah. <laughs>